got these new babies, precious. John chapter 4, would you turn there in your Bibles as we continue picking up where we left off last week. John chapter 4 and beginning in verse 27. And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, or excuse me, could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Father, we pray that as we pick up this account, this biblical account, beautiful account really of uh, the most unlikely person coming into contact with you, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we might draw application for our own lives today, Lord. Would you please help us? to not just read the scripture as a text, as a story, as an account that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, but rather, Lord, if we're truly believers in you, that we would say, well, your word is alive, and so there's a message for me today. So speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I really love this particular story because you, you have an unlikely person. You know, you have a, a Samaritan woman, as we saw last week. The Samaritans and the Jews had no dealings with one another. There was this animosity, this hatred toward one another. Uh, she's not just a Samaritan woman, but she's a woman with a sordid background. Married five times, she's living with a man that's not her husband. Uh, she engages in conversation with Jesus. It's kind of this back and forth and... Uh, and you, you got to appreciate it, you know, just how the Lord met her and spoke to her. And you've got to appreciate her because, you know, she was kind of bold in her own right and, and asked questions and, you know, kind of pressed him a little bit. I think Jesus enjoyed that because we see in the scriptures that when there was kind of this back and forth, that Jesus wasn't put off by it, never put off by it. He just kind of always, you know, yeah, let's go, <laughs> you know, and, 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 kinda, and it just kind of worked to uh, further the communication. You know, culturally, we're all different, aren't we? I, I, I think of the Hebrew people. Um, if you know a Jew that speaks Hebrew and you've seen them speak with their friends or family, um, probably like a lot of different languages, you might assume that they're angry with one another, you know, and it's just the way they you know, communicate and the inflection in the voice and, and everything, and they raise their voice, and it's not like anyone's angry, you know. I remember the first time I went to Israel, uh, of course, the, the uh, tour guide was Jewish, and, and uh, we were going into a location, and, you know, in Israel, it's always kind of an iffy thing. They might close down a section, 
And because you can't go there, some friends of ours, a pastor friend just went to Israel two weeks ago and they were unable to go on the Temple Mount. Of course, it was Ramadan and they didn't want anyone up on the Temple Mount that was not Muslim. But uh, in other times, you're free to go up on the Temple Mount and wander around up there. But I remember the tour guide on the bus, another fellow stepped on, and you would think that they were arguing with one another, and they weren't arguing at all. They were just simply, the fellow was saying, you have the serious clothes, you guys can't go through there, but uh, maybe try tomorrow type of thing. So I, I don't doubt that you know this back and forth, a lot of it was a cultural type of thing. Jesus, as we saw last week, she engages a Samaritan woman in conversation. He brought her to a place where she had to face her sin. Verse 16, go call your husband and come here. You know, guys, I want you to know the ways of Jesus. Because there are some people that everything is what they feel. Well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that with that tone. I would do it this way if I was God. Well, thankfully, none of us are God. And so we should look at God and see how he dealt with people. He was not rubbing her face in her sin. He was simply saying, you have to face it. You have to acknowledge it. I said last week, or quoted last week, the only way to prepare the soil of the heart for the seed of the word is to plow it up with conviction. And that's true. No one's ever going to come to faith in Christ if they don't acknowledge that they're a sinner, that they need to turn to Christ to be forgiven of their sins. And as we saw last week in the last verse that we looked at last week, verse 26, Jesus declares to this woman, unlikely candidate, the Samaritan woman, this woman with a sordid background, he declares to her his true identity. Guys, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that Jesus didn't walk around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. But he told her that he was the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. You'd have to look at the verse before that to understand the context. So verse 27. So we're picking it up. Of course, this all happened in one day. It didn't take a week for it to happen. It says they marveled that he talked with the woman. So his disciples come back and they're, they're wondering, you know, this doesn't look good. Uh, our teacher, our rabbi, he's here. He's speaking to a woman. Uh, culturally, this is not something we do. And on top of that, she's not just a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman. I mean, they might have said or might have been thinking, we passed this very woman when we were going into the city to buy food. And, and we, you know, kept our distance from her because she was a Samaritan woman. And here we come back and our teacher is engaged in a conversation with this woman. What in the world is going on? And of course, they were learning. You know, guys, the scripture, I don't know, I think I say this every week. But it's true. The scriptures are not boring. They're exciting. It's not just a slogan. It's not just a saying that I say. It's true. Every time you read the scriptures, you're convinced that the word of God is so exciting. You know, Jesus, when you follow the gospel accounts, Jesus was always teaching. Always teaching. He was teaching not just by the words that came out of his mouth. He was teaching by his very actions. And Jesus, even... There on this day, you know, at Jacob's well, uh, engaged in a conversation with this woman, 
he was teaching. What was he teaching? He was teaching his disciples that he knows what he's doing and he doesn't need their counsel. And that's the first bit of application that I think we could draw from this. He knows what he's doing and he doesn't need our counsel. You say, I don't counsel God. Listen to your prayers. Sometimes our very prayers are counseling God. Lord, I want you to do this. You need to do this at this time. We've got a time schedule. And, you know, and it's like we're giving counsel to the Lord rather than simply letting our requests be made known and then trusting that his timing is the best timing. So, verse 26. Disciples, I'm sorry, verse 29. The disciples come. This is her opportunity to escape. Now, she doesn't want to escape Jesus, but she does want to go back into the village because she has something to tell the men of the village. So she leaves. John tells us that she left her water pot. Now, you look at that and say, why is that even mentioned in the Bible? Do we really need that information? Again, the Bible is not boring. If we just take time to read it and think through it. He, she left her water pot. She came out there for water. That was the sole purpose. She came out to the well, not to talk with Jesus. She came out to draw water. And yet she leaves her water pot. She goes in empty-handed. Why? Because water wasn't that important to her any longer. In this moment, what was important to her is going in and telling the men of her city that she met a man who told her all things she had ever done. And then to ask the question, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? I think it also tells us or shows us that personal touch. John, the beloved, wrote this gospel account. In essence, John is saying, I was there. I don't know why, but that stood out to me that she left her water pot and went back into the village. Anyway. Could this be the Christ? Her reasoning, again, he knew all things I ever did. And of course, the other, the other reason she would ask the question is that Jesus said that he is the Christ, the Messiah. You know, when a person truly comes to faith in Christ, the natural or supernatural uh, kind of response is to tell people about it. Um, I remember, I mean, no one told me that. No one said to me, okay, Dan, now that you've placed your faith in Christ, you need to go and, and tell other people about it. That did not happen. I, I, you know, had heard the gospel over and over and over again uh, from a young age, hearing the gospel from complete strangers, it did not penetrate my heart, did not move me, you know, my thoughts did not go there until the day that I surrendered my life to the Lord, 20 years old. 20 years old, married for a year, I received Christ. The very, if it wasn't that day, it was the very next day, I sat down and I began to write letters. We lived in Northern California and uh, we grew up, my wife and I, Tracy and I, grew up in Southern California. So all of our friends were in Southern California, in San Diego. And I wrote letters to all of my friends, all of my buddies. And I said, you know, I, I found Jesus. I placed my faith in Christ. Some of these guys I went to mass with at the Catholic Church. And I said, I found Jesus. I placed my faith in him. And I was sharing the gospel with them. 
And I think that's the natural or supernatural response when someone truly comes to faith in Christ. You don't want to hide what you found. You, you want to share it with others. And that's precisely what this woman was doing. She says, come see. Come see. And I think it's amazing when you consider how little she knew. What did she know? What did she know about Jesus? She surely didn't know that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. She surely didn't know that Jesus was not too far from then, go to the cross and, and, and be crucified by the Roman soldiers and rejected by the Jews and so on and so forth. She didn't know any of that. What did she know? He told me all things I ever did. He told me he was the Christ. Her understanding was so limited, and yet she had great zeal. And I'll tell you, I've watched, and I'm sure you've seen it as well. Maybe the Lord did this in your own life. You know, it seems like the Lord loves to use people that have a real zeal and enthusiasm for him. You don't have to know much. I mean, what does a brand new believer in Christ know, really? Not much. I place my faith in him. The Bible says, if I confess with my mouth, if I believe with my heart, I shall be saved. I confess Jesus is Lord. I don't fully understand what that means, but, but somehow I, I believe it. I believe in my heart. What do you believe in your heart? I believe he died for my sins. I don't, I don't really understand what that means, what the ramifications of that are, but I believe it. I believe it. We know so little. Well, again, verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. You know, she thought she was a stranger to Jesus, but she was no stranger. I'll tell you, if you're here today or listening online or sitting downstairs, I, uh, are there people downstairs? I wish they would come upstairs if they're able. But, um, but the uh, word, I shouldn't have said that. She had threw me off. My, my mind is on like one track. I got to stay on that track or I get. But, uh, but I need to say this, that if you have not placed your faith in Christ, you are estranged from Christ. You might not like that. It's the truth. You are estranged from Christ. But you are no stranger to him. He knows everything there is to know about you. But you need to place your faith in him. So, there she is. She's no stranger to the men of her village. A woman. You know, guys, we accept a lot in our culture today. But I'll tell you, at that time... A woman that was married five times and with a man that was not her husband. I mean, there was a reason that she went to the well in the heat of the day. There's a reason she went to the well alone, not with the other women of the city. There's a reason. They knew who she was. She was a Samaritan woman with a sordid background, a reputation. And yet, you got to appreciate the fact that here she is, and she's speaking 
to the men, and it emphasizes that, she said to the men, not to the people, but to the men, come see a man who told me all things. And they're listening to her. And next week, when we get into the remainder of chapter 4, we're going to see that what she said got them out there. Once they heard Jesus, then they placed their faith in Jesus based upon what he said. So this tells us it's important. You know, hearsay, it takes you so far. This is something that we need, you know, to take seriously. You know, I, I could share with someone and that could get them moving in the right direction. Well, back to the well. His disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. Guys, remember the whole sequence of events. Why did you go into the village? By the way, as you were reading the text, maybe last week or this week, did you think to yourself, and I hope that there's some thinking that's going on as you're reading, you're just kind of questioning, you're wondering things. Like maybe you thought to yourself, well, the text says that she said to Jesus, Samaritans and Jews have no dealings with one another. Remember that? So maybe when you read the text, you thought, how is it that the disciples went into a Samaritan city to buy food? Doesn't that seem odd? Did you guys think of that? Please nod. Someone, someone tell me you're thinking through the scriptures. Or you're thinking, yeah, I wondered about that. And of course, guys, when we look at the scriptures, we don't have every word that was spoken. We have the words that are needed for the text. And I wonder if the Lord, if the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to stop and consider what it might have been like. I almost imagine, you know, Jesus, he says, uh, I'm going to sit here. He's there at Jacob's well, a place with rich history for Israel. But now it's Samaritan territory. And he says, I want you guys to go into the city over there and buy some food. And I'll be here. I'll just wait for you guys. And, and I almost imagine the, the, the disciples saying, um, teacher, you know, that's a Samaritan city. Yes, yes, of course, I, I know what it does. Go, go in there and buy some food. And it's a Samaritan city, Jesus. We, we, do, we have no dealings with the Samaritan people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, go in, buy food. I'll wait here. As I said, everything Jesus did was for a reason. Everything Jesus did there was a lesson behind it. Well, they're urging him, eat. And Jesus said, here's another lesson. I have food to eat, verse 32. I have food to eat of which you do not know. <laughs> of course, they're thinking of physical food. And so they're wondering, they're saying to one another, who do you think brought him food? You know, maybe they were even wondering, do you think that that Samaritan woman had food? I can't imagine Jesus asking a Samaritan for food, not knowing that he said, I'd like you to give me a drink out of the vessel that you use. You see what I'm saying? There? I mean, guys, culturally, there's a lot happening here. There's a lot going on that should stimulate our, our mind and make us sit on the edge of our seat and say, wow, something fantastic was happening here. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages. Look at that. Harvest, reaping, reapers receive wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both the sower, uh, those who sows, and he who reaps may rejoice together, harvest, rejoicing, reaping, fruit. All of these words are so important. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. I have food to eat. Guys, it's important as, as you look at that first uh, verse 34, there, there's two words, really four words, but I want to look at the two words first that really jump, out, jump off the page to me personally when I read this. My food is to do the will, that's the first word, of him who sent me and to finish his work. Will and work. Jesus says, this is what nourishes me, the Father's will and work. I said four words, will and work are two, and him and his are the other two. Jesus says to his disciples, because again, they're doing what we would do. They're thinking of the physical. They're thinking of the here and now. They're thinking, Jesus, you are hungry. Now you don't want to eat. What's going on? Jesus is speaking to them of the importance of doing the will and the work of the Father. That the will and the work of the Father, Jesus says, is my nourishment. And I suggest to us who have truly placed our faith in him, it should be our nourishment as well. Because there's nothing else that satisfies. Think of things that you get. I, I say get because usually when we get something, you know, it brings a measure of pleasure. You know, you, oh, we got that house and oh, it's so wonderful and it needs work, but it's going to, you know, it's going to be a wonderful place and this is our forever home and oh, we just love it. It's wonderful. It's great. And you know, that fades after a while, doesn't it? I mean, after a while, it just becomes the house that you live in. You know, I like it. I appreciate it. I'm glad I have it. I'm glad we live here. But it's, you know, yeah, it's my house. I don't wake up every morning and say, oh, I'm so blessed to be here. And that's how it is with physical things. They don't bring lasting uh, satisfaction. And even relationships. You know, I... Uh, Young couple, they fall in love. I've got that Beach Boys song singing, playing in my head, you know, wouldn't it be nice? You wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, oh, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to look at my beautiful bride every morning when I wake up. And she says, and look at that hunk of a man. He's mine. Oh, how quickly that fades. 
It's not that you don't love your spouse. You love your spouse, but it's kind of like, you know, yeah, good morning, good morning. I mean, it's just, kind of, it's just a relational thing. It's something that's here. It's special. It's dear to us. But we can so easily take it for granted because, you know, I love you. I trust you. I know you're going to be here tomorrow. Good night, babe. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Yes, I can. You know, there's, there's comfort built into that. But I'll tell you, there is, there is the spiritual will and work of God that brings a satisfaction like no other. It makes you long for more. Oh, I want to do more. I, I want you share the gospel with someone and, and they respond favorably. Now, that's rare. You guys know it as well as I know it. Usually there's resistance. But you share the gospel with someone and, and they respond favorably and you say, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that more and more and more. You know that... Um, Many missionaries, and we don't see as many missionaries as, as we used to, but many missionaries, out of this church, we've had missionaries when uh, Russia opened up. We had a, a few families that moved to Russia. Now, how did they get? Well, they went there on a short-term mission. So you go there on a short-term mission, you're with other people, there's this enthusiasm. Here we are, we're Americans, we're ministering in a foreign land. Uh, the foreigners are kind of intrigued by you because you're an American and you're in Russia and we haven't seen too many Americans in Russia and there's young people and we're having a concert and they're sharing the gospel and there's this enthusiasm. It's just kind of this thing. It's just kind of going around. And, and then you give an altar call and depending upon the culture, uh, one of our missionaries said that culturally, they would minister in some places, and everyone would respond. Would you like to receive Christ? Everyone stands up, and they all come forward. And they thought, oh, wow, boy, the Lord is really moving. I wish he was moving like this in our country, you know, and everything. And then he found out from, you know, some of the locals. They said, you know, they're just being polite <laughs> because they think it would be rude. You're giving an invitation. You're giving them an offer to come forward. And if they don't come forward, they just think that would be rude to do that. But it wasn't really connecting for them. But I'll tell you when, you, when you experience something like that, because usually a mission trip is just, it's so different from anything you've ever done before. And then when people do respond, you say, I want to do this all the time. It is a spiritual food that brings a nourishment like nothing other doing the will and work of the Father should be our strength and our satisfaction. In Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law or your word is within my heart. You know, guys, we can do that. We, could, we should, that, that should be our aim of life, uh, regardless of where we're at. I think that some of the most uh, fruitful missionaries are people just simply being faithful wherever they're planted. You know, if you're in school, then be a missionary to your school. If you're, a, if you're on the you know, job, be a missionary on your job. You don't want to be spending all your time talking to people about Jesus when you're supposed to be working. But I'll tell you, you know, I was a carpenter, and uh, 
a lot of jobs that you would do if you're if you're you know doing siding or whatever it is you're usually working with someone there's usually someone close by you because a lot of the things you're doing, it kind of takes two hands, you know. Maybe you have a third. Maybe you have someone cutting and then the other two, you know, hanging the siding or whatever you might be doing. And I'll tell you, you know, once you're, you learn your job, you're able to do your job and to be in a conversation as well. It's not like you're concentrating on each move. And I'll tell you, I've had wonderful opportunities in my past as a carpenter to share the gospel with people. Because they thought, well, you know, you're like me. You work on the same job I work on. What makes you different than I am, you know? And they could see. They could tell that there's a difference. Jim Cuthbertson was telling me between services, he said, do you, do you remember? And he mentioned the fellow's name. And he attended the Calvary Chapel in Mount Vernon years ago. And I said, oh, yes, I remember him. And, and, and Jim and this fellow were in the Navy together. And Jim said, you know, I never shared the gospel with him. But we were both in Indonesia for a short period of time. And, um, and I would go out, you know, when we had time off, I would go out to the pool where they were staying. Rough Navy life. No, <laughs> no I like that. But he went out to the pool and he would take his Bible out there and read his Bible. So, you know, sometime years later, uh, we're doing kind of a, a thing with the Calvary Chapel in Mount Vernon. And Jim sees the fellow and he says, hey, how you doing? What's up? And the fellow said, you know, I don't know if he was on the fence or whatever it was, but he said, you reading your Bible <laughs> in public by a swimming pool had such an impact upon my life. You think, boy, that was easy. He didn't even have to say anything, you know. But I'll tell you, I was sharing with the first service, you know, I, I think of... Um, this whole picture that we have of harvest, we're going to get there in a moment. Jesus moves from food to harvest. And, and, and the harvest, biblically speaking, harvest always spoke of times of joy. Uh, the harvest, you bring in the harvest. This is a time of celebration. People would party after the harvest. You've worked hard all year. The labor of the harvest is done. Now it's time to rest. Joy. Harvest always speaks of joy. And Jesus, of course, here, he's not speaking of harvesting a field. He's speaking of harvesting souls. And he's speaking of the joy of harvesting souls. And I was thinking of how, you know, Jesus, of course, was the one sowing the seed. They weren't sowing any seed. John the Baptist, he was out there sowing the seed. But the disciples, you know, Johnny come lately, you know, they come in and they're able to reap the harvest. They didn't do the work. They didn't labor. I could imagine the disciples as they went into the Samaritan city, I could imagine them walking in and saying, look, these people hate us. We hate them. Let's get in, get our food, and get out as quickly as we can. There's no indication that they said to the Samaritans, Come see Jesus. He's out at the well out here. You'd, you're going to love to meet him. I mean, he's quite a guy. There's no indication that they said that at all. 
they were so different than Jesus. They were so, I mean, they were in a completely different, they were, they were full of their own prejudices and, and feelings and emotions and, you know, whatever, patriotism or whatever it might be, you know, and they just didn't look at people the way Jesus looked at people, and yet they were learning from their teacher, from their Lord, from their master. This is how I want you to look at people. I was thinking of the people that shared the gospel with me, you know, as a, as a young guy, um, you know, I, to the horror of my parents, I'm sure, probably not my dad, my mom, but, uh, you know, started hitchhiking when I was 12 years old. That was a mode of transportation. I saw someone um, yesterday, I was driving, he, um, he kind of had the whole concept wrong because he was on the wrong side of the street, and when I drove by, he stuck his thumb out going the direction I was going. So I bet he was, he was a little confused. But you don't see hitchhikers today like you used to see them. At our high school, when school would let out, if you didn't have a car or a ride, or you didn't want to get on that dreaded bus, you would line up and you would have, you know, you'd have 30 kids just with their thumb out. And a car would drive by and point to someone, and that was your ride, you know. And I remember these two men sharing the gospel with Russ Fisk, a friend of mine, and I, 12 years old, sitting in the back of a station wagon. They shared the gospel. When we got out, I just mocked those guys. I said, oh, boy, what a bunch of yo-yos, you know. But they shared, and the seed was being sown, and I had no idea. And every time, you know, someone would paddle up to me in a, in a lineup down in San Diego and they'd say, you know, hey, are, are, you, are, you, are you Diane's brother, big brother? You know, yeah, I'm Diane's big brother. Um, yeah, you know, she's been praying for you. And, and, you know, and they'd start talking to me about Jesus. And as soon as a wave would come, man, I was out of there, you know. And there was a fellow when Tracy and I were dating and I was hitchhiking you know, I had a car, but if you're low on gas, this would work, you know. And so I was going out to see her. We lived on the coast, and she lived in Penasquitas. And I was hitchhiking through uh, Escondido, and this fellow uh, pulled over. at had a black Camaro. He, his, his steering wheel was like a chain, and, uh, and he had this real strong accent, Hispanic fellow. He's, hey, man, come on in. He's telling me about Jesus, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I cannot escape these people. <laughs> they are everywhere. But, you know, seeds were being sown, being sown, being sown. So that the day that I received Christ, I had heard the gospel, and it was like the Lord just said, today's your day. This is it. And, and you know, guys, I guess I'm sharing that because many times we share the gospel and there's not a positive response and, and we can grow weary and say, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore because no one listens to me when I share the gospel. You know that the results are not up to us. We can't save anybody. We can't bring anyone to faith in Christ, but we're to share the gospel with people. That's what we're told to do and, and it's the Lord who does the work. Well, I got I to gotta speed this up. So Jesus asked the question, and he said, um, <laughs> do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Listen, do you not say, catch it, don't miss it. This was a common saying. 
Do you not say? Is yet four months and then the harvest? In other words, the harvest is four months away. We've got plenty of time. Don't worry about it. But Jesus says, in verse 35, the second part, he says, no. He says, the harvest is now. Look, look at verse 35. He says, for they are already white for harvest. Guys, listen. When Jesus said that, he wasn't looking at a harvest field that had the white buds indicating that it was time to harvest. Do you know what he was looking at? He was looking at the Samaritans coming out with their white turbans glistening in the light. Look at the fields. They are white for harvest. And I wonder what his disciples, I keep going back to the disciples. Do you guys know why I keep going back to the disciples? I'll remind you next week. But remember it was James and John, the sons of thunder, and we wonder how they got that nickname when they were going through a Samaritan village. And Jesus' face was set like flint to Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans did not receive him. And remember what they said? Lord, do you want us to call down fire and torch the city like Elijah did? And he had to rebuke them and says, you know not what spirit you're from. So we need to understand that, guys, it wasn't kumbaya. These people were dealing with real issues that were hard to get over. But Jesus was teaching them. The Samaritans, they come out. The, the harvest is white unto harvest. And it's all because the Lord used a lonely woman who, were, who was no doubt shunned by her peers, by the people of her city, with a bad reputation to tell her story. What was her story? Come, come meet a man. Come see a man that told me all things I ever did. Do you ever, here's another place where we stop and we pause and we think. He told me all things I ever did. We don't have every word that was spoken. What if it was something like this? Who is he? I don't know. He's a Jew. A Jew? There's a Jew down at, the, at Jacob's well, happened to be a Hebrew, a Jew, a Jewish well. A, a, a Jew? You were speaking to a Jew down at, yes, he's a Jew. But he told me things. He told me the things that I did. He told me of my past. He brought that to light. And I can't explain it. He's a Jew, but he didn't treat me with contempt. I don't know how to explain it. He was approachable. I, I, in, I enjoyed speaking to him, though I didn't necessarily like everything he had to say. And I, I imagine these, these men coming out, these Samaritan men. I don't think they came out with big smiles on their face. Let's go see the Jew who claims to be the Messiah. They probably came out with stern looks on their face saying, we got to check this out. What's going on here? And that's what's so beautiful about the story is that when they spend time with Jesus, they are persuaded and they believe. Well, life application, don't underestimate your usefulness. 
for the Lord. Guys, the Lord wants to use you. He wants to use us. He wants us to share the gospel with people. Do you have loved ones? Do you have people that you go to school with? Can I ask you, young people or college students, whatever age, are you more concerned about your reputation than about the salvation of your friends? I think sometimes we are. I don't think it's just the young people. I think it, that applies to all of us. But do you have a loved one? I mean, let's start close to home. Do you have a husband? Do you have a wife? Do you have a, a child that doesn't know the Lord? Are you fervent in prayer for them? Do you petition the Lord for them? Do you know I prayed for the salvation of my parents every day, every day, every night, when I would just kind of say my prayers, you know, closing out the day, I would pray, and Lord, please save my father and my mother. And, um, you know, my dad died, uh, you know, it wasn't like he had an opportunity to have a deathbed type of experience or anything like that. He was alive, and then he was dead. I mean, it was that fast. And after he died, um, my mother came to faith in Christ. You know how rare that is for someone in their 80s to come to faith in Christ? Statistically, that's really an, an amazing thing. But I look at all of salvation as a miracle. Do you know how hard it is to persuade a young person today that's been brought up on the lies that are being shoved down their gullet day by day? There is no God, there is no absolutes, there is no this, there is no that, there are no absolutes, you know. And the kids have bought it, they believe it, even kids in the church. This generation of young people are more confused than any generation that I've ever read about or, or known. And I thought we were a messed up generation, but we look great compared to what's happening today. And I feel so bad for the kids, I really do. I was thinking, this will be offensive to some, but I was thinking, Lord, what would, what would the equivalent be, you know, for, for church people, for Christian people? So we live in such a strange time. Nehemiah, you can come up. We live in a time where many churches, because they don't want the pushback that comes from standing up about sin. Remember, he says, uh, go call your husband. He didn't say, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to embarrass you. It's okay. You know, let's let be bygones be bygones. When she says, uh, you know, our fathers say that we're to worship on this mountain. He didn't say, well, it's okay. Listen, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe in. That's modern day Christianity. He said, salvation comes from the Jews. You guys don't know what you believe. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. Friendly, happy, gentle Jesus. Gentle Jesus always said something that stopped people dead in their tracks to where they said, what? That's our Lord. Because see, hurting someone's feelings to him mattered little. <laughs> 
truth mattered a lot. But Jesus, he confronts, but he loves. We live in a world, we're supposed to embrace everything, you know, all of the agendas, the homosexual agenda. Oh, Dan, you can't speak about that. You know, there's laws being passed about that. Aren't you aware of what's happening in Canada? You know, pastors don't talk about these things any longer. Oh, I know that pastors don't talk about a lot of things any longer. Shame on them. One day they will give an account when they stand before the Lord. And we have young people in our churches that are confused because, you know, they know people who are homosexual or lesbian. Our kids know more people than you probably know. And when there's not the truth of the word of God, they're confused on the matter. Well, maybe, well, possibly, well, maybe people are born that way, and and maybe we should just, you know. And yet, love says, that's sin. Love says, heterosexual sin or sex outside of marriage is sin. It doesn't pick one particular sin. It says, listen, if you're living together, we've had many people over the years that have attended this church, and they come in as a couple, and, and as we get to know them, they finally will say, you know, Pastor, we're not married. I say, well, but you're living together, yes. Well, why aren't you committed to one another? Well, we are committed to one another. Well, no, you're not. Why, why aren't you married, you know? Why don't you marry one another? We've had a few weddings here, probably a handful, maybe five of them, where we've had a cup, the couple and a, a witness and myself, and we just, uh, to make things right. I said, do you want God's blessing upon your life? So we don't just target one particular thing. We deal with all of them. But I was thinking, what if there was a harvest? What if there was a harvest of people from a homosexual background coming to faith in Christ. They come in with with all their baggage and all of that, but they're coming to faith in Christ. They're acknowledging their sin. Could you rejoice in something like that? I could rejoice in something like that. You know, Christians, we should stand upon the word of God and, and we should be so bold and not care what other people think because I'm telling you, the world is changing so radically. There are certain things you cannot, you will not be able to speak about. And if we're not courageous enough to speak about it, I was at a pastor's, Tracy and I was at a pastor's meeting last week. We're talking. We're talking about the struggles that people have, not specifics, but struggles that people have. One of the pastors said, I want to read you guys something. I text the fellow back and I asked him if I could share it. I told him I was in a meeting, pastors. He says, we have this fellow in the church. He's come from a homosexual background and, um, and yet he has placed his faith in Christ and it is a challenge. And he said, I said to the fellow, I said, uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And, uh, but I want, to, I want to work with you. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to be in contact every day. Every day. I mean, it almost brought me to tears because of the raw uh, honesty of it. The young man who's involved in the church, doing ministry in the church, 
confides in his pastor. So-and-so mentions another fellow, has been at the church, and I've been struggling in my flesh. And I know that my struggles are selfish. Please pray for me, Pastor. That's honesty. Those who want to pretend, oh, no, 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 whatever it takes to get them through it, you're not helping anybody. Move out of the way. Let someone else do it. Someone else is going to love them and help them with their struggles because you're not loving anybody by walking them to the gates of hell and saying, come on in, it's okay. Nothing matters any longer. And it does matter. I, I hope this resonates with some because we live in such a strange, strange time. We really, truly do. Where when you... Um, just recently, you know, we had some issues, you know. You know, Dan, you're so harsh. You're so doom and gloom. You're this, you're that. I don't know. Maybe I am. I don't see it. I, I, I think, you know, doom and gloom. Uh, the world is winding down. Jesus is coming back. Is that doom or gloom? <laughs> Jesus is coming back. How could it be either? I mean, if you're truly a believer. But it is doom and gloom for those who profess to be believers, but you don't believe the Bible because Jesus is the one who tells us he's coming back. And he told us that everything was going <laughs> to fall apart so that we might know that we're getting close. And we need to wake up because we have neighbors and we have nephews and we have nieces and we have children and we have people around us that are struggling. And you know what they want? They want someone that's going to lovingly stand with them, not condoning their sin, but saying, I want to help you. I'm here to help you. I'm going to pray with you and for you. And we need to get together and we can work through this because there is nothing too big for the Lord. Yes, let's stand.